0: You are listening to Let's Talk Trio on podcast. Keep up with the latest episodes by downloading the Podbean app or stream episodes via our social media accounts. Search for Let's Talk Trio on Facebook or Instagram. This episode is sponsored by Student Access. Student Access, the leader in TRIO software. Student Access is an online database solution that allows TRIO programs to track their students' information, connect with students by text messages, streamline the APR, and work from anywhere, all online, with automatic updates for changes from the Department of Education. Their technical support team includes former TRIO staff and has over 50 years of combined experience working with TRIO. Make it easier to focus on your priority, the students. For more information and to request a free demo, visit their website at www.studentaccess.com or call them toll-free at 1-800-801-1232. That website again is www.studentaccess.com or 1-800-801-1232. Be sure to share your favorite episodes on your social media by tapping that share button. This is a great way to support the podcast. Now here's your host, Juan Rivas.
1: Thank you, Amelia, for that wonderful introduction. Hello, listener, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Trio. I am your host, Juan Rivas. In today's episode, we have Doria Warmly, who is a graduate of Southern Illinois University and Texas State University. Doria is a former TRIO staff member for Student Support Services. She's on the podcast to talk about her educational journey, her experiences, and to share with the audience about uh, the meaning of persistence. A huge thank you to our sponsors, Angelica Villalpando, Rosario Riley, Jaded Electronics, and Student Access. Thank you all so much for your continued support of this podcast. You too can be a sponsor of the Let's Talk TRIO podcast. Head on over to Patreon, search for Let's Talk TRIO choose one of four patron levels. You can support this podcast for as little as a dollar a month. A dollar a month does go a long way in supporting this podcast. If you own a business and would like to advertise on this podcast, send us a message and we can work out some details. Uh, For $100 a month, you can sponsor this podcast and we will weave in your ad uh, for each episode. If you would like to nominate a participant, staff, or alumni to be on the podcast, send us an email at letstalktrio at gmail.com. That email again is L-E-T-S-T-A-L-K-T-R-I-O at gmail.com. So I will put a trigger warning for this episode. Doria Warmly is recalling an... uh, also thinking back about her college experience and a lot of the things that she's had to endure to complete her, both her bachelor's and master's degree. So uh, again, a word of caution for the audience. Uh, We will hear about uh, instances of racism, prejudice, uh, behavior, and uh, just a a lot of resilience on Doria's part to get through all of this. So I do want to caution our audience. Again, this comes with a trigger warning. Uh, This uh, the guest is recounting various uh, instances of racist or prejudiced behavior, uh, not only in the college setting, but also in the professional setting as well. So uh, that comes up a little bit later into the podcast and uh, also in the middle of it. Uh, also, uh, we pride ourselves in allowing the guests to be themselves. We don't want to censor. We don't want to. Um, limit the way a guest expresses themselves. So I uh, just know that this also comes with a uh, a strong language rating. Uh, so uh, just know that, uh, again, this I, I'm not here to uh, censor or to uh, limit how a guest expresses themselves. Um, and I enjoyed very much having Dory on the podcast. Uh, I think uh, having the most authentic self Uh, present uh, when we can hear you uh, just adds more to you as a person overall Uh, so uh, again i'm very happy to have doria on here um and she's again very very authentic uh and very straight up Uh, will tell you about her experiences uh, and just a very uh, humble human being as well. Uh, So Doria, again, thank you so much for sharing your story. I know that uh, parts of it uh, were very raw and very emotional for you, but uh, I still appreciate you uh, being able to be that authentic self. Uh, So again, uh, one more time for the audience, this comes with a trigger warning. Uh, There are instances of racist Prejudiced and at times uh, very frustrating behaviors uh, that you will hear about uh, that Doria experienced, um, and I'm I'm choosing to leave all of that on the podcast uh, because we strive for authenticity and we strive for the full story and the full context. Uh, with that, please sit back and uh, enjoy this episode. Bye. Four, three, two, one. Hi, Trio Nation. My guest on the Let's Talk Trio podcast is a graduate of Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and graduated for the bachelor's degree in 2014 with speech communication with an emphasis in public relations and obtained her master's in education in 2016 in student affairs and higher education from Texas State University. She has previously worked as an admissions counselor for the University of Texas at Arlington, held positions within Dallas College as a university relations manager and director of TEDx Mountain View College. She is the founder of the Sailor Justice Project, which is a grant consulting company that specifically targets businesses of marginalized populations. In their spare time, they enjoy K-pop, anime, and all things food. It is a huge honor to welcome Doria Warmly to the podcast. Doria, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. And you know what? I should have put this in there. So. So, um director of TEDx that is partially true I was the assistant director and on my resume like it's it varies between like co-director and assistant director but uh I want to give a shout out to Kiana Bradley was the director of TED those to those all of those times that I was working with TED so I just wanted to kind of give her 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 um, just do with that. Yeah. Fantastic. That's
1: awesome. I love that shout out. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for being on this podcast. We appreciate you. And uh, I was so excited when you reached out and you said, I want to share my trailer story. We were not able to get a, a, a solid time and day down. And now finally we got here.
2: Yes, yes. Totally. Finally, we got here Um, with the rescheduling and everything going on and trying to get through the holidays and stuff. I'm just glad we were able to say, like, get a date on the calendar so that we can talk this <laughs> through. Because I'm really excited to do this.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so we are recording this episode as many schools and colleges are returning to take on the spring semester. So they're about to start up again. Uh, how are you doing after experiencing 2022? And, you know, are you experiencing something similar where you're like, ah, got to get back into the grind, getting back into everything? How are you feeling?
2: Goodness gracious. I'm feeling like, um, I'm feeling like I'm starting this year off differently than I have before. Because um, I'm currently not working in the college, the higher education space. So this is the first time um, where I'm not like, starting January as the second time of a calendar year to a um, academic calendar year, right? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I'm starting the year off productive but a little bit slower um Mm. that allows me to kind of breathe and not have to escape at the end of my work day as much um so I'm feeling really good about the work that I'm doing right now and I feel very calm like I'm able to like um I've been able to come come into the year really really strong getting a lot of work done but not feeling completely like exhausted and like drained from the day yeah Um, I'm feeling really good about this year
1: right on. I feel like uh, there's a difference between people who work in service industries and other private industries versus public education and uh, higher education, where they function off of, I feel like most of the time, two different calendars. Are you feeling that now that you've left higher education and onto your own thing?
2: Absolutely. Oh my God. Absolutely. It is because like it's still almost like you it's like when you graduate college and you're still working within higher education like you're still operating within that same calendar system so it's right. like you graduate from college but you never graduate from that calendar Um, And so your body never like really regulates or your mind never really regulates itself to like operate within like a traditional calendar year from January to December. So when people are like, oh, yeah, this is the end of the year or January is the start of the new year. Like, yes, it's the start of a new year, but it's not the start of a new. But I feel like higher ed, our new year, we kind of have two, like one in January and then one in August.
1: Right. Um, (laughs) You know,
2: Right. So like it is it's taking <laughs> some adjusting to not refer to like oh yeah, this is the spring term. nobody else refers to January as the spring term right um, <laughs> oh like true. okay, true. so now we're the oh, and true. then usually like all the all those hiring and stuff that happens like mm-hmm. most other industries do a lot of heavy hiring at the beginning of January why because it's the beginning of the year. For mm-hmm. higher ed, that's the mm-hmm. middle of the freaking year. And I mean, to be hired in the spring is cool, but it's easier to be hired in like in August or even right. really more like in the summer toward the end. So you can kind of transition in and be ready at the start of the year. Coming in in the middle of the year is coming in in January. We're coming in in the middle of the year and in, in, for the rest of the world is coming in in June. So right. um, it is definitely <laughs> taking some adjusting, yeah.
1: It's definitely different mindsets there. Um, So I've got to ask, I'm a huge fan of New Year's. I I love the holiday itself. I just love the the symbolic turning of the page and into the new year. Uh, Did you set any goals for yourself or do you have any New Year's resolutions for 2023?
2: Yes, actually. So I did, I said that I was gonna just have like a theme for the year and just try to operate within that theme. Mm -hmm. And so my word for the year is more. More. And my theme for the year, yes. My theme for the year is, um. Oh goodness, I I forgot it just that fast. Um. But basically, it's me asking for more. Period. More of more money, more for my life, more travel, more love, more care, more rest, more All sleep. Right. Um. More products for my skincare collection that is growing <laughs> abundantly on my counter. Um. Just <laughs> more. And I think that as a woman of color, particularly as a black woman, um, I have been conditioned to ask for the least and to be humble about when I offer the most and Mm. don't get what I deserve in return and Mm. so I am throwing that completely away it's like I do exceptional work and I accept exceptional right on back right in terms of salary or treatment or relationship like I just really want to focus on um working in, abu- in an abundance mindset. And I know abundance has been like used, oh my God, to the death. Like people have discovered the <laughs> word and used it and used it. Um, but truly, I really want to live my life in abundance. And so more is just, it's a simple word. And sometimes it's, it's the simplest things that give the biggest impact. So um, yeah, that's my goal for this year is to just do more
1: and Do be. more and receive more. That's awesome. I love that. Um, so I've shared my favorite holiday. Mm-hmm. Uh, What is your favorite holiday or do you have a favorite season?
2: Oh, goodness. A favorite holiday. Um, I don't know if I really have a favorite holiday because they're all based in white supremacy and colonialism. But I do have a favorite season. (laughs) I won't say all of them, but a lot of the ones that we get time off for on work. Right. Right. (laughs) um, My favorite season would have to be summertime One because my birthday is in the summer, even though technically, like my birthday is in spring, Mm. right? Because June is technically like I think on the tail end of spring, but it really more feels like summer. So my
0: favorite time
2: of year is summer. Um, um, I run cold, so I prefer the warm weather. Um, and I love the water, so I especially this year. Oh my god, I want to be near the water way more. So, um, yeah, I used to be a lifeguard. I used to teach teach, uh, swim classes. That's Um, awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back, you know, like sixteen. Back in the day, but um, I I don't. I wonder if I can fit into that swimsuit now. Um, (laughs) But um, yeah. So I want my favorite. Yeah, my favorite season is summertime. Um, so I can be outside doing all of the fun summertime things, and um, yeah, and celebrate my birthday. Of course, it's like my own personal got to
1: absolutely. (laughs) I love it. Uh, In your introduction, we have shared that your interests are K-pop. Anime. uh How did you be- develop an interest in all that? And was it something that you over time? Was something immediately that you clicked with? Yeah, talk to us about that. Oh,
2: goodness. We're on this podcast for the <laughs> next 30 days. Just kidding. Here we Until go. 2025. No, I'm <laughs> saying, right. So, um, anime is where it all began, right? Like, we were all kids. Well, was particularly millennials, we were kids of the 90s mm-hmm. and of Tsunami on Cartoon oh, Network. Oh, Tsunami. So oh, you're I throwing was it back. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, I was one of, like, the kids that came home from school and, oh, my God, Sailor Moon is on. I have to watch it, right? (laughs) Dragon Ball Z, all of that. Um, Tokyo Ghoul, you know, Cowboy Bebop, all that, you know, the throwbacks. Um, So, of course, at the time, most of us didn't know we were watching anime. It was just a cartoon that was on Cartoon Network that was bombing. We was watching it. Um, and so when I got to high school, I found myself like rewatching Sailor Moon once a year on wow. YouTube or whatever other streaming site mm-hmm. um, before Crunchyroll was legit. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was watching Sailor Moon over and over again. <laughs> and and um, high school was when I discovered what anime was. And, so I, I was, and then ah. I binge watched Bleach. For the first time, senior year of high wow. school. And this is before all the episodes about yeah. and before, you know, that last season happened that Tank Bleach just but we won't talk about that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so then we, uh, which, you know, it's, it's a great time for Bleach fans right now. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, once I really just got grounded and accepted that like I love and cause that was, you know, before the way anime is now, it's like totally the thing. It's the trend. I'm like, then it was just totally not. So I got oh, yeah. really grounded and I am an anime fan. I like anime. I'm going to be loud about it. I don't care who knows about it. I'm, I'm just going to get grounded and that's who I am. And then I started to find community um, in that and in finding community over the pandemic, it was in one of these anime Facebook groups. Um, that I had heard, like my students had recommended to me that I should like mm-hmm. check out K-pop. Mm-hmm. I had BTS on my phone for like a year and never listened to anything. <laughs> and then the pandemic hit, mm-hmm. and um, the pandemic hit, and um, two of my students were involved in a car accident oh, and no. they passed away as a result of that accident. And I'm um, sorry that. To hear that. Really. Yeah. And they were trio students. And so that shook me that that I cut my hair. I, yeah, it was it was not a great time for me. And so that was when I discovered BTS mm-hmm. and um, I, I discovered BTS and then I was hooked. I was hooked. I was down bad. <laughs> um, and then I discovered the world of K-pop and Korean culture and um I've been, like, down bad for K-pop ever since. So, like, you know, not now it's really interesting that we've been in, code, like, all this pandemic stuff has been, like, and now, like, beyond two years. We're in 2023 now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've mm-hmm. been a fan of K-pop now for two years. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that's how I got into it. So, like, K-pop had a little bit more of a, like, sad story to start with. Um, but uh, it has made a a long-term and life-changing impact on my life
1: Um, that's wonderful i think yeah yeah i think that uh when you started off with yeah very somber but but out of the memory of your students you continue to get into k-pop and it still persists now so i gotta put you on the spot because there's a lot of uh, bts fans out there who listen to the podcast um do you have a favorite song
2: oh do i have favorite song one just
0: one a favorite song, a favorite. One one. A yes. favorite
2: song. <laughs> jesus christ okay god damn what am i what do i what do i say okay so i'm just gonna say for now <laughs> my favorite song right now
0: mm-hmm.
2: that is bts damn is I'm, I'm gonna say run bts run bts after like proof came out that's been on repeat, right? Okay. Okay. And like I have a list of like favorite <laughs> songs, you know, D DNA, Mike drop, of course, like the 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 heavy hitters or whatever, right? But like mm-hmm. everybody's been coming out with their solo stuff. And so RM just came out with Indigo. And oh my God. Uh, uh, okay. So his song with um Uh Still Life. I'm still Life,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, mm-hmm. that,
2: that is, that is. My jam. That is my ish. But Change Part 2 is speaking to me on a spiritual level. Um, but I would say my favorite. Look, I've given like 12 songs now, right? But my absolute favorite song that has come from a member of BTS mm-hmm. is August D's solo stuff. Sugar, his other name is August D. And his solo, he has two uh, mixtapes that he's released previously. And my absolute favorite song from him is called People. Um, or Sodom is people in Korean. Um, Mm -hmm. That song, it's, it's, August D has such an amazing mind. Like, I mean, it's really appropriate that his, uh, his studio is called the Genius Lab because he truly is a genius in the way that he puts lyrics together and Mm -hmm. the way he interweaves English into the Korean lyrics. Um, But the message of people really resonated with me because it just really talks about um, people and how people change and the ebb and flow of how people change and the impact that it has on you when people change and the impact it has on the other people and just all the complicated emotions that come with that um at least that's what I I take from the song um it is probably my absolute favorite song of k-pop period
1: but yeah so yeah Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much for giving us next time. I'm going to modify my question a little bit and say, okay, what is your Spotify certified number one song? That, <laughs> way-, <laughs>
2: that
1: way, you yeah. know, it doesn't put you too much on the spot. Um, uh, so you're no, tra- you're no stranger to podcasts. You you host a podcast of your own. Uh, talk to us about it. What is it
0: about?
2: Oh, goodness. Okay. So that podcast was from a long time ago. I still don't Mm -hmm. have it going. I think I just started that in like 2017. And we did, I think, two or three episodes. It Mm -hmm. was, um, yeah, but not the podcast. It was um, basically me and my friend got together and was just like fed up with stuff. And we wanted a space to just talk about it and come up with like creative solutions. Um, right, yeah. and so we did those two episodes, and then uh, we had a special guest, and we did an episode on um, Black Panther when it first came out. Oh, the amazing! First one. That's so cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, and we talked about um, my what I remember most from that podcast was uh, when we talked about Killmonger mm-hmm. and how he um. And just that dynamic how it represent how the movie itself represented the really complicated relationship between um i'll just say like very broadly africans mm-hmm. and african-americans that were brought over here via the slave trade and mm-hmm. how complicated mm-hmm. that dynamic is and um how black panther like unpacked that and how killmonger is the villain and as a black American who is trying to find any piece of my roots and of my culture to give back to myself that was Mm -hmm. stripped from me, I can understand his rage and anger. And so that was, um, that was one of the things that I remember most about that podcast episode, but it's no longer running. Um, Actually, the guy that I did that podcast with, uh, that guest podcast with he mm-hmm. was just talking to me yesterday about like yo you need to just go ahead and start another podcast and I'm like yeah, you know, should but I got so many other things that I need to do I know
0: <laughs> you should you're gonna start. hear
2: this and be like and now <laughs> <laughs> we'll see 2023 is just starting so we'll see we'll see okay. um I got Fair a enough. bunch of other stuff on the docket I want it done. Um, but I, I can definitely add that to the list to get that off the ground at some point.
1: Right on. I love that. Um, now you've served TRIO programs, right? I mean, you, you've you uh, served, uh, what, what TRIO programs did you serve?
2: TRIO SSS. So um, when I was working at Dallas College, I worked for TRIO SSS. Um, I was a coordinator, but you know, like those titles don't really like encompass all of what you do (laughs) that's very true i was so true i was a transfer advisor slash academic advisor slash i taught the like trio 101 classes which is kind of like trio's version of a um college entry course like how do you take notes what's your learning style that kind of stuff so i taught that um and did like uh, the transfer workshops, helping students figure out, because I was at working at a community college, right? And so I'm helping students not only graduate, but also participate in the transfer process to get to university to get the bachelor's degree.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and, and coordinating all of like the university trips and stuff like that. Um, I was specifically tasked with working with our second year students. Uh, which makes sense, right? Doing the transfer stuff. So all the students that had at least 30 credit hours that were on their way out the door, getting them where they needed to to be to transfer to whatever university they were going to go to.
1: Right on. Awesome. That's amazing. Thank you so much for giving us a little brief insight about your TRIO experience. But we're going to put all this into context because this is the part of the podcast where we go back and reflect on your educational journey from the beginning. Can you talk to us about your family and your upbringing?
2: Sure. So um, I am from Chicago, Illinois. Well, I'm from the south suburbs of Chicago. And um, both of my parents were first generation, uh, first generation college students. Um, And so they went to they went to school in the late 70s, early 80s um, and both graduated from Illinois State University Mm -hmm. Um, and so growing up college was always on the table college was always a topic of conversation before I was able to even walk and talk right Mm -hmm. Um, meeting my my parents college friends was like a thing like there are pictures of like my birthday parties from like one and two years old where obviously I don't remember that but there are pictures of all of these black college graduates at my birthday parties right so like college was always Mm -hmm. a thing that was going to happen um I'm a private Catholic school kid uh pre-k through 12 i went to private catholic school and my college was a college preparatory school so college there was never a point where college was not a topic of conversation i don't remember mm. when i learned what a credit hour was i always I, it feels like i always knew what that was but at some point i had to learn it interesting um, yeah but i learned that well before i was in high school i understood a lot of these basic core concepts around college that were just kind of like it got to be like it was just kind of common sense right Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and uh right common sense for me and my and what was what my life looked like at at that time um and then so through and then I was also like one of those kids I was an honors kid AP kid you know like um high achiev- achieving I was put in like the special programs I would test into stuff I would win awards and be on the honor roll and games list and all that stuff so um you know and st- you know you could categorize me with air quotes you know academically gifted right mm-hmm. um and you can hear mm-hmm. a little bit of the um I don't know what word to describe like the, the what's going on in my undertone um is that uh, I say all these things that I, I very much recognize how much that, how much privilege is in that, and mm. how. Um, I guess that's what when I, I guess you'll probably ask me that later, but like when I transitioned into college, that was what was challenging. Of uh, there was there's this weird gray area of mm. being a black student at a PWI. That experience is what it is, regardless of how you grew up. Mm -hmm. and also having access to knowledge and resources that a lot of my peers didn't readily have access to even before coming into college that provides me a level of privilege so there's a very weird like gray middle area that I existed in in -hmm. college that Mm -hmm. um it made it difficult to maybe not to find community but um no yeah it did make it difficult to like find community and to find like kind of where I belonged once I got to college um because I was at because at that point I was at a state school Mm -hmm. um, and it was just it was very it was it was very much an adjustment for me to figure out how to navigate my way coming up the way that I did because also and coming up that way like when you hear like private school suburbs and stuff you think oh well you must have been like the only black kid in your school right like no actually my high school Mm. was like over 95 percent black and i Mm. was in a majority black suburb which is also very different right so i went to a private catholic school that was 95 i mean it looked like a hbcu up in there Mm -hmm. um but the interesting part about that is that i was at that school And it was like not over 95% black, over 95% of the teachers were white. And the, and most of the black staff worked, worked in athletics.
1: Wow. Uh Was there a little bit of dissonance there? Like kind of like, Whoa, what?
2: what? 1000%. There were teachers there that were scared of us and we, and we knew it.
1: There Mm -hmm. were teachers there that
2: did not like teaching because prior to that seat my that high school had been a predominantly white high school because the area was predominantly white once mm-hmm. my parents in them generation graduated from college and started making good money they moved into that suburb and so the demographics of the schools changed wow. and so then I witnessed white flight in my neighborhood I, I saw it and I, I see the impact of it now um, mm-hmm. and so uh, the teachers were there when the school was majority white and there were definitely teachers there that resented the change in demographic and mm-hmm. that definitely did impact the, um, the way, the, the way that we were educated. Right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Because you can tell when teachers really don't be fucking with you. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was a very, um, I had a really I had a dope childhood. I had a dope upbringing. You know, I had fun. I was able to like walk to the walk to the store and do all these different things. And there was a lot of things I didn't have to concern myself with. Um, and it was a very interesting middle ground. And I knew that it was different than a lot of other people that I, like, you know, that that were growing up around me was experiencing. Mm-hmm. But once I got to college, it was the first times that I felt isolated as a consequence of that.
1: Oh, I see. All right.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Doria, thank you so much for sharing that. I think uh, it's important to put context into our own uh, journey, right? Uh, so people understand like, this is where, where I'm coming from, right? This is, this was my educational experience. Um, so it's fair then to say that your family placed big importance, huge importance on college.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely and it wasn't just my parents my grandparents too you know there was just Mm -hmm. and because like I was I academically I was always doing well um Mm -hmm. it just became like just like the general expectation so if I would have to come out and say like I don't want to go to college or college isn't for me like that that would have been shocking Mm -hmm. that would have been absolutely shocking um so yeah yeah
1: (laughs) So talk to us uh, about your elementary school experience. Do you remember, do you enjoy, did you enjoy the classes? Did you enjoy attending? What, what yeah, tell us about that experience.
2: Sure. So elementary school was fun. Um, I had, well, when I first went to elementary school, I did pre-K through third grade mm-hmm. at a Catholic private school in the city of Chicago. Um, so I lived in the suburbs So, I went to school in, on the south side in the city. Mm-hmm. And that school had majority Black teachers. And there was so many different things that we did that I didn't realize that were specifically black. So that's what I learned. Um, oh goodness gracious, why can't I remember it? It's the um, is it it's like where the black, hold on, let me give me one second. I'm gonna Google yeah. it. Make sure I'm saying this right. Yeah, the Black National Anthem. So it's where I learned lift every oh. voice and sing. It's where I learned um, all these very specifically Black things. The principal was Black. The assistant principal was Black. A lot of the teachers were Black. Um, most of everybody lived on, on the South Side in the city. Mm-hmm. There were a few folks like me that lived in the suburbs or whatever, and their parents lived in the city. And my grandma lived like within walking distance of the school. Um, so it just worked out. And I remember having a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, they also had mm-hmm. a lot of programs for the arts. And so um I was taken. So look, this is gonna sound real suburban and bougie. I took uh, (laughs) ballet, jazz, and tap classes as a kid. Um and uh my that teacher was a teacher at that school. Mm. And so she did a lot of the creative art stuff. And so we had um plays and dance recitals and stuff at the school. And so you really got to see black kids really participating in the arts almost at the same level that you saw them participating in sports. And there were the same amount of resources and stuff available for both. Mm -hmm. Um, So that during that time, that was extraordinarily fun. And I made a lot of friends and actually uh, one of my best friends from kindergarten, um, me and her are still friends today. Oh wow! Um, And she actually lives in Texas. We both ended up moving to Dallas. (laughs) 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 So um, I actually need to, catch up with her we haven't um I haven't talked to her in the new year yet but um yeah I remember having a lot of fun and being able to really fully participate in extracurricular activities um I was always busy busy doing busy. something and then even okay. when I left that's yeah when I left that school in the city in third grade and then did started going to school at the Catholic school in fourth grade in the suburbs um it was a bit of an adjustment. I mean, the student population, as far as like I said, was mostly black, so like that was, you know, not too much adjusting. It was adjusting to the the number of white teachers that were there, um, and I wasn't behind in any way, like academically, I was still performing well. Mm-hmm. It was just different, mm-hmm. and I mean, in fourth grade, you don't know the reason why it feels different. Mm-hmm. Um, and but uh, some of those, but because that school had been I think, well, no, at the time that I was going there, the school was kind of 60, 50, 50, 60, 40, 60 being black Mm -hmm. um, and the rest white. And so um, I remember there being like the teachers were really engaged, but it was the same thing that was kind of happening that ended up happening in my high school. The blacker the school got, it was like the shorter the patience of the staff got. Mm -hmm. um, And it felt like the more resentful teachers got. Um, and it really, what it was is that those teachers were ill-equipped to so not to say that black students have more trauma, but the students that were attending there that were black, the parents that were sending them there, um, were, some of them had been exposed to quite a bit and had a level of trauma that just needed a certain level of expertise that the teachers didn't have. Definitely, And that was largely due to their white privilege.
1: Definitely. Mm -hmm. um for many students uh when they as they're going through middle school or through elementary school uh they start looking at middle school and they have a little bit of a little bit more anxiety toward that do you remember what your experience leading up to middle school was and what was that like for you
2: so the thing that's interesting about private school is that they can put everything in one building so if it was you didn't have like a graduation and you graduate and go to middle school. It no. was like, you just went to the next grade and everything was all in one building. So like preschool was in the same building as eighth grade and all the grades in between now, sixth, seventh, to eighth grade, we kind of had our own, not quite our own section, but like sixth grade was toward the end of the hall on the second floor. And then there was like the first floor and there was kind of this, It was a t-shaped hallway and with like what would look like the top of the t Mm -hmm. was all the way in the back and that's where the seventh and eighth grade classes were so we were kind of separated from everybody else yeah um so i didn't have a lot of like you know impending like oh my god i'm going to middle school right it was really just me Mm. getting up and like i'm in fifth grade summer happens august I'm in a sixth grade classroom now. And so um, it wasn't really, I didn't really have a lot of turbulence around that. Um, I do remember in sixth grade, like once I got there, um, a lot of that's when like a lot of folks had like started their periods already. And, you know, people at this point, like it was more people than not that were wearing a bra with the clips on the back, right? Like we had pretty much graduated Mm -hmm. from training bras and stuff like that. So just kind of that normal, like middle school, like, mm, you know, if you're on the tail end of development, right, like if you have it, because I was one of those, that like it took me a minute to get my period. It took me a minute for my breasts to come in. It took me a minute, you know, to like develop. I was a little bit slower on the development side. So there was some of that insecurity happening, but like really no turbulence around actually going to
1: sixth grade. Okay, Um, you mentioned earlier that you did get involved with some extracurricular activities. Was that in middle school?
2: No, that starts in like in in elementary. Um, Oh, that starts in elementary. So I was involved. Uh huh. That started in elementary. It's private school. You do what you want. So, um, I I was in extracurriculars from like. I think I did the first like play or like musical thing that I did was maybe like in first or second grade Mm -hmm. um, when I was at the first school. And then when I went to the school in the suburbs, I uh, was on the my mom put put me on a basketball team. And um, I think that was like the only thing that I really like did. But then like that starts in fourth grade. Okay. Um, so it was interesting to move to Texas. And I'm like, y'all don't like you have to like do that with like the YMCA? Like y'all ain't got no sports beyond middle school. Like that seems so like you have the most energy in elementary school. That just seems so bad. (laughs) Um I was like, you ain't got nothing for the kids. I mean, we had like fourth grade, you was able to play sports, you had a uniform, you had a coach, you had practice, you had organized games with referees and all that jazz Mm. through the school. Um now I mean your skill level was of a fourth grader, but True. you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I played basketball in fourth grade and then um fourth through eighth grade and then um any like extra stuff that they did, like like the private school in um sub the suburbs didn't have as many like creative arts things to do. But if mm. there was any like extra field trip or extra thing to do like Mm -hmm. I would sign up for it there wasn't as much of that like as we got like older there wasn't as much to do outside of the sports Mm -hmm. um until you transitioned to high school but um yeah but then like my mom would always put me in stuff like outside of school so I was always busy doing stuff it was just whether it was associated with the school or not
1: all right Uh, at this point of your educational journey what did you learn about yourself
2: At this point, I learned, like, last year that I'm an auditory learner, and that would have been nice to know, like, Ah, before last year. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that, like, a lot of time, and that makes sense why I was able to, like, get through a lot of schooling without taking notes, and why my notes were never helpful to me. Mm. Um, Writing notes is very distracting. Um, because I can't I need to listen and hear what you're saying and I need to understand it for myself Mm -hmm. and and it's easier for me to like just repeat what you said and regurgitate it in a way that makes sense for me for it Mm -hmm. to stick than to write it down and study Mm -hmm. it later because now I'm focusing on writing down what you said but I didn't hear the rest of what you said because I'm focused on writing it so Uh I'm missing like half of, of the whole lecture and so I think what I know now, had I known that I wouldn't, wouldn't have bought as many notebooks because I bought notebooks to take wow. notes so that I could look like I was paying attention. And if I didn't take notes, it felt like it, I wasn't paying attention. Um, and, you know, it was so much emphasis in private school. Like they teach you how to take notes and making sure that you're taking notes and the different methods for taking notes and which method works for you. Um, and there really wasn't an option for auditory le- learners to really figure out how to take notes, which is not writing at all. Mm -hmm. um so at this point in my journey I think I with that said I think that I really benefited from private school for the the education but also understanding how systems work I didn't realize that was the what I was learning but I was learning how systems work right because the school demographic had changed but the system had not Mm-hmm. And so why was the system not working working for the students when it had worked before?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Because that system was created during a time where Black students weren't taken into consideration when those policies were being made. Again, right. that high school was predominantly white up until like, you know, mo- like the 2000s, really. Um, so I, I think I, I've, at this point in my educational career, I've learned a lot about what I learned that I didn't know that I learned
1: Mm -hmm. wow that's that's an interesting way to put it I think Mm -hmm. um (laughs) absolutely um so as you started now right uh, middle school going through that going through that experience now that transition to high school because I know for a lot of students that's that's an odd experience right going from middle school to high school what was that like for you
2: Um, now this is where I was getting nervous. Eighth grade. I'm like, I'm going to high school. Oh my God. This is a big (laughs) freaking deal. And because, well, because it's a private school, you have to get in. Mm -hmm. So for high school, you have to apply. You have to take a standardized test and you have to get admitted first. So that was my first experience with having to apply and be admitted somewhere. And so there was a lot of pressure around, not pressure, but I, I put a lot of pressure on myself and I was really excited and I really, really wanted to go to that school, um and i wanted to test well so i remember um when i went in for testing day um and took my test and i remember when my scores came back and i got my schedule um mm-hmm. and and i was told that i was admitted to the school and what my schedule was going to look like and that i had tested into honors classes that was a really big deal mm-hmm. um and so i remember being really excited and happy about that and then a lot of my classmates like most of us um except for maybe, you know, like maybe four or five, all ended up going to private high schools. Now, some folks ended up like transferring out, but like, yeah, like once you end up, we all, most of us all end up going, like there's the same like private schools in the area. And so after you've been in private school for a while, it's such a small world, like you end up kind of knowing everybody from all the other private schools. And so then you go, and then all y'all go to the same private high schools. So Hmm. y'all end up just growing up together. And it's a different kind of Family it's very unique because again the South Suburbs transitioned into being mostly black. So my elementary school was not the only one that transitioned to be mostly black. It was the mm-hmm. other elementary schools too. So transitioning into high school was like, holy shit! I'm gonna be in here with all these other kids from all these other private schools that like I know but don't like know as intimately as I know my core group that I'm comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, like academically I wasn't nervous about it, but socially I was. Mm-hmm. Um, because at that point, I was the Harry Potter kid. Um, so you were right? the
1: Harry Potter kid, like you were into Harry Potter. You were mm-hmm. expressing, right, I would say, uh, the things that you loved.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. And at that point, only, uh, only the first four books were out. And so like <laughs> I was rereading the books because I had nothing else to read. I was waiting uh, for the next one to come out. And so mm-hmm. um, I think I was a little nervous socially, and, um, and I was nervous about just being in such a big place and there being all these people that just seem so old and mature, like 15 year olds seem really mm. old and mature when you're 12 <laughs> and 13, um, and being, and then like waiting to be a teenager and being 13, like, wow, I'm a big time teenager now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what I remember about that.
1: Okay, um, expanding a little bit more about your high school experience. Uh, what was your involvement in there like? Did you did you get to do a lot of things? Try a lot of things?
2: God damn, I was involved as fuck. Oh my god. Oh my god. My mom will tell you she would have suggested to join one or two clubs. Mm-hmm. I said, hold my beer. I'm joining everything. What do you mean? So. <laughs> Uh I tried out for the basketball team and mm-hmm. I and I'll say this too. Like I've mentioned basketball a few times. I wasn't great. I was one of those that like got defense the player of the year award and stuff like that. You know what Ooh, I'm saying? So I'm yeah. not I wasn't out here hooping, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um uh I, I was I, <laughs> I was not just starting five. I was not his <laughs> life. I did not hoop, I played basketball. Okay, you play basketball, basketball players. I played basketball. I did not hoop. Though real hoopers will know hey. exactly what that means. That differentiator. Um, <laughs> tried out for basketball, and so I did that all four years. Um, tried out for softball, and like softball was my bread and butter, like as far as athletic goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and so I played that, and then that was also at the, around the high school was also the time that I became a lifeguard. So I did. Um, the lifeguard training and stuff at the public school that was down the street, and became a lifeguard. And then I was in theater, mm. the theater kid,
1: a theater uh, kid. Uh, I, got, uh, I got to ask you, what was the uh, what was the play that you got involved with that you really loved the most?
0: Oh,
2: Grease. That Grace. was my favorite.
0: Grease. Okay. So if you've <laughs> okay.
2: watched, if you've not, are you familiar? If you're familiar with Greece then you should be familiar with the nerd Eugene that the uh that would get bullied by the um what is uh
1: the thunderbirds no the uh the
2: thunderbirds yeah the thunderbirds yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so they would bully him
1: mm-hmm. so
2: if you watch especially if you watch like the the movie like the first uh like maybe like 15 minutes you'll see when they first like you're int- getting introduced to Rydell High god damn i remember a lot about grief <laughs> um <laughs> i i played eugene i played, you played eugene all right i played eugene <laughs> i played eugene awesome. and i played you and the gender of eugene did not change i played a boy
1: mm, uh, mm.
2: so i got a sports bra and some great ace bandages and taped them mother suckers down um <laughs> and drew
1: <laughs> hair and wig
2: and did so committed I'm so committed, and um, that was probably my favorite play. It was probably, I would say, probably one of my best performances because I Mm. really escaped and, like, got into the character, and I think Mm. it was easier because I had to really pretend to be somebody completely different. I had Mm. to pretend to be a different gender, a different everything, and I had to think and operate that way, Um, and I had a lot of fun in that role. Um, I was also a junior, so I was a little more familiar with the theater world and stuff, and um, so yeah, and then we had a tech crew, but like sometimes tech crew would be like short-handed
0: because
2: um, mm, people mm. would like want to join early on, but really didn't understand like oh yeah, you're really gonna be like using drills and building shit, and mm, so sometimes mm. they would need help painting and stuff. So I would also like sometimes stay after to help like paint the set and do stuff. Um, so yeah,
1: <laughs> all right, <laughs> agreed. But tell me, you you at least got some recognition or some accolades for your role because play a different gender and then having to uh, perform and then you know really s- sell it please tell me you got recognized for that
2: uh, no I did not oh. yeah yeah Let's... that was actually a, a point of contention um mm. and mm. senior year I didn't try out there was one of the plays I didn't try out for mm. senior year because um theater politics theater, high theater... school politics
1: <laughs> it, goes, it goes right back to politics right <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, yes. I remember no. being really upset about it. And I remember, yeah, because I remember also like the uh, teachers and the directors that were over it, like were really complimenting my growth.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and it was kind of like one of those like, like, oh man, like this person that's kind of been like in the background the entire time has finally like stepped into a role and like grown in some capacity. Right. Um, and I didn't get it, and like I'm, you know, you know, as I'm talking about it, I'm still mad about it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to open old wounds.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's all good. You know what I'm saying? Like we still beefing about. I'm just kidding. We're just kidding. No, it didn't change my experience. Um, I still had a really, really fun time in that role. Um, right on. Yeah.
1: So, and and sorry, I, I derailed our conversation completely. But um, in terms of college readiness, I think uh, you you've already said. Parents put a priority, family put a priority in education and in college. So for you entering high school, was your mindset already in, uh, yes, I've got to do all these other things for high school, but my mind is really already in that college track.
2: 100%. Yeah, I knew that being involved was important. That's not why I joined all that stuff, but I Mm -hmm. knew that this was going to be important to my college applications, Um, like right off the jump before I had even enrolled. I knew that that was the case. So, um, yeah, I signed up for all of that. And I knew, well, well also the curriculum is, de- is designed that way. Mm-hmm. We are required to take the enough, however many courses are required to get admitted to any state school in the state of Illinois or in the country, really. Right. Um, yeah. Those are the courses that we're required to take. So there's no accidentally graduating and not having this course taken or that course taken and not being able to get in. That doesn't exist because it's okay. the required curriculum. Oh. Um and oh. so that was the conversations that you had with your advisor off the rip of like, okay, these are the classes you're gonna take. These are and then all of the classes were named. Your regular or like um your standard classes were mm. called college prep courses. Okay. And then when you the next tier was honors. Mm -hmm. college, um, college prep. And then the next level was AP college prep. Wow.
1: So then, and again, it's a fair assessment to make that your your high school was really preparing you already. Like you said, no excuses. You have the credits required to be college ready.
2: Yeah. There was a point where, and I don't know if they continued this policy or how much they enforced it once it got later on before Mm -hmm. the school is closed now. So before the school closed, um, it was a requirement to be admitted to a university to graduate. Oh, wow.
1: Mm-hmm. So there's a requirement of like, you have to have been admitted to a college before graduation, which uh, I'm sure most of, if not all of the graduating class had a college already that had admitted them.
2: Mm-hmm. And then this speaks to the elitism of it all, right? Oh, sure. If sure. you were admitted to a community college, that was not something you wanted to brag about because oh. community colleges open enrollment. So mm-hmm. it's like, the thought was really like, so you're not smart enough to get to a university. You had to go to community college where it's open enrollment.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
2: the shame of going to a community college was so real. Mm-hmm. Um, So you didn't even apply or even like operate with that as an option. And getting into like the most prestigious university was like, you know, or getting into a university with like hella scholarships was like the thing to do. And like on Absolutely. the morning and that during the morning announcements during your senior year, they announced like the list of new people that have been admitted to universities and colleges every day. So mm-hmm. they're like, Oh yeah. So this is who's been accepted into this university. And this is how much they've been awarded and scholarship and blah, blah, blah. And I remember sometimes people would have like lists of schools. Um, wow. but it that was on the announcement on the intercom every day. So from freshman year, you're hearing the seniors, you know, announced on the intercom, what universities they're going to. And like you, you didn't want to be the kid that was on, it was on the intercom that you got into community college.
1: Mm, mm-hmm.
2: That was just like, you just didn't want to be that kid.
1: Yeah. Wow. So the the culture there sounds like not only competitive, but you're trying to be accepted by the most uh, prestigious co- colleges and universities.
2: Mm-hmm. It's elitist as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> that sounds very unique. Yes. yes, absolutely.
1: It is. That's because it was. <laughs> <laughs> so your discussion then for college, because it was already a mindset that you were already in and your parents were already promoting that, was that an early discussion that you had with your advisors and your counselors? Was that something you already like off the bat, you already knew I have to have a discussion with my advisor about college?
2: Um. Well, that's just a topic of conversation. You come into the appointment and that's what they talk to you about. Um, if you're at that school and college is not what you're trying to do, you're honestly wasting, not wasting your money, but like, why are, mm. why are you here? Right? Like the whole point of this is to go to college. And if there's any other like alternative route, why are you spending all this money a year to right. send you to that school? So like, that was just, I didn't have to initiate any conversations. Those were just a part of the, like that was just a normal part of the conversation in like your advising appointments, but also in everything and like orientation conversations with the parents, the parents knew that was the expectation. That was the convert that was just embedded into the whole institute, like as a whole, like wow. college period. Like if you were in, I mean, in sports, I mean, obviously college just talked about like getting scholarships and stuff like that. Um, but like, Also, like in like in theater, you can have conversations about like, oh, what it would look like to have be, you know, do theater in college or what would it look like to be on the dance team in college or, you know, whatever. And Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that was just always just a topic of conversation. I never had to initiate anything. It wasn't my responsibility to bring that
1: up. All right. Uh, Before we leave the the high school discussion, I want to just squeeze a little bit more lemon from this to see if we can. Were there any other things that you were involved with that you that you want to share with the audience?
2: Um, uh, Because it was a Catholic school, I brought praise dancing to the school and praise, praise dancing. dancing. Okay. Yeah. Praise okay. dancing is very specific to African-American culture in hmm. the black church where you have like praise dancers and mimers and, um, and always wanted to do praise dancing. But at my church, um, that at the time that I wanted to sign up, they were completely like over capacity. They had way too many uh-huh. girls. Um, they didn't have enough space. So I ended up being an usher at my church, fun fact. Mm -hmm. I was also like, you know, I was raised in the church, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, uh, at my high school, of course, since they had just transitioned into being mostly black, they didn't have praise dancing, but we had church, we had mass during school. And so I was like, well, it would be cool if we had praise dancing during mass, if we're going to have church during school. And so, um, Praise dancing had already existed, but I think the like three, it was three girls that started it and mm-hmm. they all graduated. Um, and so they didn't have praise dancing for like a year or so. And so I went and then I think they had started it before I had got to the school. So then when I got there, freshman year didn't exist and I wanted to do it. So sophomore year I found out about it and I had found out who the advisor was and went to them and was just like, yo, I would love to do like, to do praise dancing and to do this. And so um I ended up doing that so like that was like when I was writing letters and talking about extracurricular activities that was one that was on my application that like (laughs) a lot of people wouldn't put like (laughs) praise dancing on their (laughs) obstacle college application right and having to explain that um so I was a part of that and that was that was really fun um that um I learned a lot about myself in that role because it got especially senior year, it got to the point to where it was like really, really stressful. And I think I had put way too much pressure on myself and I had way too much going on. Um, But, yeah, I really enjoyed that time and enjoyed um, doing that. So, yeah, that was I bring that up to say that, like, within again, a very unique experience, even within like Christianity, the the some of the. Um, cultural practice differences within the different churches and stuff. That was something, an element of, I was able to bring this element of Blackness into mm. this Catholic school, into mm. this very Christian Catholic um, environment, which was cool.
0: Yeah,
1: that's, that's awesome. Um, as you approached your senior year, did you have uh, a list of colleges that you wanted to attend? Uh, because, like you said, at in, in, in the early on at the uh, of your interview is like, yeah, college was already kind of something we were already pushing for. So uh, then you you must have had a, a list of colleges you really wanted to uh, to attend.
2: Oh hell yeah! You had I had my list. I mean, you really start that list. I don't know when you really truly start that list, but you definitely are like working on. If you don't have a list, you're working on a junior year.
1: Um, <laughs> right, right, early oh, yeah, at least, so right. I-
2: oh yeah, you're definitely working on that junior year if you don't already have a list by junior year. Um, And so senior year, you 100% have your list. Um, Mm -hmm. And I applied to 12 universities. Um, I was admitted to 11 and I was, um, I wasn't denied to the other school. They Mm -hmm. put me on a, they told me to submit a, a letter i was put like on it wasn't an appeal it was like
1: like a waiting um, list or a a yeah like a
2: wait yeah it was like a reserve list and they were like if i wrote um basically if i just wrote a letter Mm -hmm. um then i would be like i think it was like a conditional admission kind of thing
1: i see i'll never
2: forget it was the university of wisconsin um madison
1: oh okay so you applied there too right on yeah
2: yeah yeah that was the one that was the only one i didn't like get just like immediately into and so since i was admitted to the other 11 schools and also i i had some pride going on there too i never submitted that letter cuz i was just like <laughs> yeah, like what i didn't get that right. <laughs> <laughs> i never submitted that letter i mean but then it was also out of state and so i would have had to regardless if i wrote the letter i would have gotten any scholarship money or anything and so mm. i wouldn't have um been able to afford to go there for that because of the out-of-state cost right um but yeah and then toward the end you just kind of like you apply to all of those and then as you get admitted you just kind of start narrowing down like what are your top schools and I remember feeling like really behind because I hadn't selected a school I had applied and stuff all in the fall but Mm -hmm. it was like March and I hadn't selected which school I was going to where a lot of my peers had already like started they were already like we were all accepted but a lot of them were like starting to nail down housing assignments and stuff and um doing some of the next steps or whatever that I hadn't done. I had just been admitted and just kind of been sitting on admission letters and hadn't done anything yet.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, So then talk to us about that moment uh, of, uh, I would say for a lot of students, they they call it uh, the freedom from high school. Uh, What was that moment like for you when you graduated?
2: When I graduated in my mind, I wanted to graduate and go to college. And obviously I wanted to perform well academically. But in my mind, even though I did all those other extracurricular activities and had friends and, like, went to parties and stuff like that, I very much felt like a large part of my identity had to do with my academics. And mm-hmm. I didn't want that to be the case anymore. Um, and so when I went to college, I went, like, wanting to do well, but wanting to kind of, like, do the whole, like, kind of reinvention of myself um, and being more known for Not and being known for something other than my academics, um, and so I went down there with full intention of having as much fun and partying as much as I could. Now, Mm -hmm. was I deprived from going to parties because I had to stay home and study? No, absolutely not. Like, my mom definitely allowed me to go to like different parties and stuff, I had fun, Mm -hmm. um, so I wasn't like locked up in a cage ready to like bust out, but (laughs) there was an element of like, oh my god, I get to go to college, I'm 18, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, we can like. You know illegally drink I never illegally drunk I totally waited till I was 21 guys wait till you're 21 never done that <laughs> disclaimer. um disclaimer um so yeah I just forgot what your question was what was it again
1: <laughs> no your moment of graduation like that moment that you graduated was that a moment of celebration for you and your family was that you know some of the feelings associated with graduation
2: yeah so graduation was really exciting um I was really excited I and then because of my birthday I was 17 because my birthday is in June so I -hmm, I turned 18 mm -hmm. after that so I graduated and I was 17 and I had all of the um I had all kind of stuff on my shoulders you know what I'm saying um and so uh, uh it was a huge celebratory time and like my family was there and um I remember, like, senior year, there was just, like, the, it just seemed like the weather was perfect, and everything mm-hmm. was great, and it just was a lot of fun. Um, I also remember, like, some of my friendships starting to change, and I being a really? little bit in denial mm-hmm. about that, mm-hmm. um, and so those friendships, ended started to kind of, like, uh, you know, as your high school friendships do, start to change as you go into Definitely. college.
1: Definitely. They change, yeah. Um,
2: but that change kind of started to happen at senior year, but I was kind of in denial about it, but um, it was a super celebratory time. Um, And I just remember having a lot of fun that summer Mm -hmm. and it felt like just, and then I had, um, I don't know if they have these in Texas trunk parties, um, which is basically just a party where you, come um, and you give people gifts that you would need like in your residence hall, oh in
1: your residence hall. cool that's uh-huh. that's, a, that's an amazing idea
2: yeah you just have and like and I would always say this and then I would come down here and talk to my students about it and students like would know nothing about what I was talking about. I was like, oh did you have a trunk party and I'm like what trunk party was that <laughs> I'm like yeah people it's like the same concept of as a baby shower. So like people would yeah. just bring you wow. all the things that you would need for college. So like cleaning supplies plates and you had a registry you made a registry i had one with like target uh i think bed bath and beyond and like walmart Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and so that's where you get like you know like you have like your theme your color things you are like a purple comforter and plastic plates and stuff
1: so um
2: (laughs) it was a really fun time.
1: That's awesome. Love that. Uh, so you decided to attend Southern Illinois university at Edwardsville. Um, mm-hmm. what you, what did you do to prepare for college that summer? Or did you already feel like I'm ready? I'm ready to go.
2: Oh yeah. I was totally ready. I was ready. I, I had done by that summer. All the stuff was done. All the hard work was done. I was admitted. I knew where I was living. My residence hall stuff was done. Um, scheduling I had my classes and stuff all of that before the summer I was ready to go. I yeah. had my t shirt, I had did the tour and stuff. Like so then <laughs> it was a thing, right? To like have a like a t-shirt and you know like going to the bookstore and buying t-shirts, especially at universities, they're so expensive. It's like forty five dollars oh, for t shirt
1: forty five dollars to just for the university name. You know
2: saying and it's some basic t-shirt with like four letters across s-i-u-e 45 plus tax what the hell um (laughs) uh but that's about how much bts merch is but anyway we're not even gonna talk about that
1: (laughs) i'm not gonna so i work for colorado state university love csu uh i have a a shirt from my alma mater who it's, it's it's eastern new mexico university enmu i have a shirt older than the csu shirts that i bought and they the emu shirts have lasted longer and the csu shirts have already like they're worn down they have holes i can't wear them so i'm like mm, why, why are we charging 35 45 for these shirts they don't even last that long
2: you know you know i was just like let me get just a little thing and make these t-shirts but if that was the thing so like i remember like the few shirts that i had like if there was something going on you know, like trying to wear my shirt, like, yeah, this is where okay. I'm going and going into stores. And then people seeing you, they see a young black woman walking in one black, young black girl that looked like she could be in high school, could be in college, walking around with yeah. a university t-shirt. Older black people in particular will big you up, especially like in Walgreens, oh. you picking up your mama pharmacy, your mama, uh, prescription. Mm oh, are you in school? And they ask you all these questions about what you're majoring in. If you feel like a little mini celebrity, almost like (laughs) um, everybody's super proud of you when you're going and it's it's a black community. So there's like a a different level of pride of just like, God damn, like all that work, especially like when you saw older women, I didn't like really like appreciate, I, I appreciated them appreciating me, but I didn't appreciate what it meant for them to see me with that shirt on. When some of those older folks, I didn't even realize like they had lived an adult life where illegally it was illegal for them to vote. So oh, to see uh, yeah. This 18 year old walking up into Walgreens, just casually picking up prescriptions for parents or buying whatever or buying a snack, whatever, with this university T-shirt on that didn't allow them to attend. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't feel the gravity of that at the time, but like that's, I think was like at the root of a lot of the celebration that would happen when you would wear these t-shirts into places around the community. Oh, um, yeah. So I just remember that yeah. summer being like, a lot of people being really proud and happy for me, but also having like high expectations that I was going to go to college and like really kill it and do a great job.
1: Absolutely. So once you set foot to college uh, at the campus, um, did you know what you wanted to major in?
2: Yeah, I oh yeah, I knew that. Like senior, like beginning of senior, like toward the middle of senior year, I knew exactly. You already what I, knew. That's the already knew because that's the question <laughs> everybody asks you. Like, you, what, what you? And then you have friends that I already know. You like, god damn it, I gotta get on the ball because like people was knowing <laughs> it like junior year, and I'm like, shit, I don't know what I'm majoring in. I gotta figure this out by senior year. Um, civil engineering. <laughs> Was what civil I wanted to go into civil engineering was what I wanted to go into, and so I selected. That's and then that also informed where I applied.
0: Mm-hmm. So I
2: only applied to universities that had engineering programs. You didn't have my major,
0: mm-hmm. I didn't waste
2: my money applying. Um, and then uh, I, 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 I was always really good in math. Calculus was my favorite class. No cap, like that was just math was my shit. <laughs> <laughs> so. so, so- um,
1: you're one of the few guests that, that that very proudly, you know, math is is the, th- the thing that you that really enjoyed. Um how did that come to be? Did that evolve over time with you? Was it it started in school or just something that jumped out at you and said, "You know what? It's math. Math is the thing I want to be in." Well,
2: I think what it was, again, I didn't know this at the time, is all of my math teachers pretty much all of my math teachers were women.
1: Mm. And
2: I was never fed the narrative that girls weren't good at math Mm, um, mm, in mm. my main communities at home or in school. That's just not, there were, and then because it was mostly black, there was just like some kids that weren't good at math and some kids that weren't, there wasn't a racial differentiator there. Um, So I just was a person that happened to be good at math where my friend, was maybe just another person that happened to be good in English. Mm-hmm. Um, where like I've met other black kids that went to private schools that predominantly white private schools and that was a very different experience.
1: oh sure. Um, sure.
2: So then in um I've I, I've been joking a lot about this since I've turned 30, especially it's like in eighth grade I was like a math lead for a hot second. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, I was I was selected to participate in a math competition. And, um, so we did, I did like one math competition in eighth grade. And so we did that for a few weeks. So I was like a math lead for like four weeks. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so that, but what you're saying here, and it really highlights the story here is that math carried over into college, that, that that's what you really wanted to pursue. And civil engineering reflected that.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Awesome. So what excited you most about being in college? <sighs> Alcohol. Dorian, <laughs> <laughs> no, you can't say that on this podcast. I, I, just kidding. <laughs> I
2: know, I know. Horrible, right? No, like, what did I, I was really most excited for the freedom to go away. It okay. was the going okay. away to university I was most excited for. Um, so being able to live away and like live on my own and going out and like that Love freedom that. was really yeah. what I was excited about. Like, The right answer would have been like, I was really excited for the academic career. I I was excited (laughs) to be an engineer, but I was not excited. We need you to be real. You know what I'm saying? Like I was excited (laughs) to go and party with my homies, you know, and I was able to, I was like, I got to ask my mama to go nowhere. I'm going to go and I'm going to do the thing. And I could wear what I want. I put on my thought clothes. I was like, give me a thought selection. Put on my heels. I only wore heels that were four inches and taller. I was (laughs) ready and I learned to, and because of how racism works in southern Illinois, mm. I learned how to run from the canine unit in heels oh fairly quickly. It was a part of the black freshman orientation. You didn't oh know that you needed, it until you needed it. Why? Because our parties were what? Over-policed. Shocking news. Black parties are over-policed. they predominantly white institutions. What would they do? Sit the canine unit outside of the party two and three hours before the party would even start. Oh, nothing was happening yet no they would never if a fight broke out they never arrested the right person and so people were going to bail out the person that wasn't even in the fight um so yes that was the thing that excited me most right is just going and being able to explore my freedom and have a good time
1: that's amazing. I love that, though, that, and definitely right. Uh, not to shy away from those co- type of conversations. That um, what over policing means, and uh, what what police typically target. Right, is uh, low income uh, communities uh, of color, and that that that's, that's uh, at, at, I think still very much an issue now. And it's still we're still having to grapple with that in twenty twenty three. That is still you know mind mind boggling um, mm-hmm. for you. How did you find out about the trio programs? Was it when you transitioned into a professional role, or was it something that you found out about it in college?
2: It was something the trio program did not. We didn't have trio at my. Oops, I dropped my iPad. We didn't have trio <laughs> at my um, university. Mm-hmm. We had a. This is before first gen programming or first. Yeah, was was really oh. like a thing for real. This was like yeah, in yeah. two thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. We had a version. Um, of a first-gen program that was completely like homegrown and based from the institution Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but that gray area that I talked about earlier this is where I fall in that I don't qualify for any of that
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I'm not first generation and I'm not low income so I didn't qualify for any of those programs but I was still black at a PWI and so a lot of the resources for black students and I say black students because at that PWI, it was like 90 something percent white, seven percent black, and everybody else was like one per less than one percent. Right. Yeah. So that's what diversity looked like, right? And so for black students to get any resources, um, and international students had their own like set of resources. And honestly, I, I don't know what that looked like, but I'm I'm I can guarantee you they had their own challenges uh being at a PWI. But um yeah, they had those resources, but I didn't qualify for any of that. So I didn't find out about trio until I was in grad school. Wow. Okay. Yeah, my grad school had had trio programs there, and so that's when I found out about trio um, because I had tried to. I had. I was considering interning um, with a trio program when I was in. Uh, I think it was. I'm pretty. Yeah, it was SSS that I was mm. actually thinking about. It was S. Was they had SSS. Um, I can't remember if they had McNair or not, but I was thinking about interning there. And so, yeah, again, like McNair program, I wouldn't have qualified.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I think a, a lot of the trio programs are intentional about that outreach. Right. Um, but uh, knowing that that r- resource existed and you you found out about it in, in, in graduate school, you must have felt like, oh, so these res- resources exist for students that um, are that don't have right the resources that that they needed to begin college in the first place.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I had my own, like we had a, like I said, we had a version of a first generation program that existed mm-hmm. and there was a bit of, and that's where I said, I felt like I had a hard time kind of figuring out my social circle because mm-hmm. while I had like all this privilege of having all of this exposure and resources to, to college, Mm -hmm. Once you get to that college campus and you're existing as a black person in a predominantly white space within a system that does not work for you, there are additional resources that you need on how to navigate that space. And just the mental tax that it takes to show up to class and to show up and do the things that your white peers are doing, it -hmm. is just harder. Um, I had a bit of an easier time uh, because of all the things that I knew, but it was harder to create uh, stronger social circles because a lot of people's social circles started in these programs. So like they were having meetings and going to events and doing all kinds of programs and stuff and going to places that I couldn't be a part of. Cause I couldn't be a part of the program. And so I was again, kind of left in this weird, like middle zone of, I don't qualify to get into any of these programs. So like mm-hmm. people are having these experiences and I don't really get to be a part. And so like, you can meet people in class and meet people and stuff but once you have an experience together and you're doing this thing together it's a different kind of bond that I was left out of largely Mm -hmm. and but then also I'm not white so like I can't just I can take advantage of like the standard college resources but those resources weren't created for me in mind Mm -hmm. so you kind of I you kind of when you when you have this kind of experience as a black person, you kind of fall into like this middle child syndrome situation Mm -hmm. where you're kind of like, it's really easy to kind of get left behind because you're not the super high achieving one anymore at this institution because Mm -hmm. it's so difficult to do that. Um, But then you're also not at the bottom either. So you don't need as much help. So you're just kind of left to your own devices to figure it out. And um, I yeah, with that, I almost dropped out.
1: I gotcha. Mm-hmm. So what what was the thing that kept you involved? What uh, were you involved in a lot of college um, activities or things that at least kept you interested?
2: Yeah. So my first year of college, my grandfather passed away, and I I'm sorry was. To hear yeah. Well, thank you. I I um, I appreciate that. I uh didn't know it at the time, but I was going through my own version of depression, trying to function. Mm-hmm. And um, I just got lost in my own thought. Can you just repeat that question? What yeah, the I? question is,
1: um, what kept you what kept you engaged in college and what were you involved with a lot of things while in college?
2: So after my grandfather passed and I was operating through depression, I got on academic probation. I had a hard time even getting up to show up for class. My grades mm-hmm. went into mm-hmm. the toilet. Mm-hmm. Um, And it wasn't until that um, I got a letter from financial aid that said, hey, so you've lost your financial aid from this year out because your completion rate, this is when I learned about completion rates, Mm -hmm. "Uh, is below 67%. And we accidentally made a mistake and awarded you your financial aid for this term. So since it's already paid out, we're not going to ask you for a refund, but for the next term. You will not have financial aid. You will need to pay all of this out of pocket. And so I had to appeal. So I appealed for my financial aid, didn't get approved, appealed again. You can only appeal twice. And then it did get approved and I got my financial aid back. Once I did all of that, um, my uh, supervisor at the time at the part-time job that I had, I um, she had pulled the grades for all of the student workers and saw my grades and was like, your grades don't match your intelligence. What's going on? Mm -hmm. Um, Why is your grade? Why are your grades below a 2.0? And so I told her about what was some of what was going on. And she kind of took me on as a mentor and that's what turned things around for me. She was a black woman and, um, she had previously went to the institution and, um, she really mentored me and like helped walk me out of a really dark space. And so uh, I, I started, I started back getting more involved. I joined um, some more student organizations. Um, I, that when you're on academic probation, there are required things that you have to do as far as like going to tutoring and stuff. And so I made sure to just, I, I just got really, really just buckled down and just forced myself to do all of those things that they asked me to do to get Mm -hmm. off academic probation and to get my GP up, just get my GPA in good standing um, and to keep my financial aid. So the first like two to three, the first like year and a half was me like struggling to figure it all out. Mm -hmm. And then like the next year and a half, so like the first three years of just me rebuilding and fixing what I had, what had been, was broken. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the last two years were me, um, Performing much better academically, but I had just like settled on the point that I was, I was no longer, not that I was no longer smart, but I was no longer the high achieving student at the institution, which had its own level of like mental, like did some stuff to me mentally. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I, yeah, getting involved and having that part time job and getting that mentor um, really changed things for me. Um, And then I was able to finally kind of find my community. Um, and so that, that, that turned everything around, but then it was also just me just deciding that, like, I did not do everything that I did. My parents did not pay for me to go to private school for me to go back home. I'm Mm -hmm. not going back home. I just decided I'm I'm not fucking going home. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to stay here, buckle down, and I'm going to get to and I'm going to graduate now. Like, had I known about all of the different mental health stuff that I know now, Um, I would have been able to articulate to somebody that like, yo, I think I'm depressed and probably need some counseling or whatever. And like, let's, let's figure this out. But, you know, I just kind of like gritted my teeth and grinded through. Was that Mm -hmm. healthy? I mean, probably not, but I'm like, I got the degree. I was like, you know, by any means necessary, I'm getting this degree period.
1: Certainly. Certainly. Um, In that college experience, was, was there anything memorable or anything that stood out to you that you really enjoyed or just kind of spoke to the, the potential career that you might be having?
2: Um, in high school, it's easier to pinpoint things that I really enjoyed. <laughs> Undergrad, it's a little more challenging. Was it kind of um, all over the place? Uh, I, had, I had fun. I went to parties. I had fun. I... Uh, enjoyed like learning about what career I wanted to do next because higher ed was where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but the things that I learned in undergrad was more about what I didn't want and what I didn't want to do and what I would not tolerate. And that's where the social justice wow. advocate was really like activated because mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin happened when I was in undergrad mm-hmm. and I was in black student union at the time. And this is before Black Lives Matter was a hashtag or was a thing. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
2: the Black students on campus, I remember being at work and watching all of the news footage and stuff. And so like, we didn't know how to protest. We didn't know how to be, we didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, We knew that Trayvon, that this was wrong. We knew that it was messed up, but this was the first one. So we didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And so we were like trying to figure out what we wanted to do. And so then um, Trayvon happened and then uh, this, I graduated in May and six weeks after I graduated was when uh, Mike Brown happened. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, which is 20 to 30 minutes outside of St. Louis, mm-hmm. where the, where, uh, which is where Ferguson is, is situated. Yeah. And so I remember um, I was also an RA and I also remember a lot of the like I was really noticing a lot of the racial disparities among staff and among the RAs that were hired and how difficult it was to be hired as a Black RA mm-hmm. um, and how you're treated when you're a Black RA um, and the professional staff that weren't Black RAs and so um, I definitely made my my voice be known um, at a large event I expressed my uh, uh, disgust with the racial disparities in my department in a very like public way in front of Mm. a guest speaker that got the attention of the chancellor and the vice chancellor and that had real implications for the housing department and they had to come up with a strategic plan on how to fix because that it it got to the point where like I was interviewed by the vice chancellor other RAs were interviewed it it was a huge thing Mm -hmm. Um, and in doing that and turning up the mat on a lot of the racism that had been ignored for a long time, I didn't make a lot of friends that way. And so my last year of undergrad was extraordinarily challenging, mm-hmm. traumatizing. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of like full-time professional white people that were not happy with me and were happy to see me leave. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. And I so that. I, yeah, so I knew that I wanted to be a higher ed professional so that I could be the advocate that I didn't have.
1: So it sounds like then you you had an idea of what your career trajectory started to look like about advocacy and social justice, um, and and you shared with us some watershed moments for you because these these were moments that were building up. Um, who are your mentors in college? Who are the people that shape help shape you uh, to to these uh, to become a leader and to become uh, yeah out, outspoken about uh, social issues.
2: mentor I had a supervisor when I was an RA Mm. that helped me but she helped me to the capacity that she could because she was also the only black staff member of her position and she had a mountain of shit to climb up to just Mm. get her basic bare bones job done Mm -hmm. and that was and like most of black staff at that campus were overtaxed because there weren't enough staff for the black students that existed for everybody to have a mentor Mm -hmm. and so um she was a great supervisor and provided a lot of guidance and then but outside of that I didn't have guidance and mentorship again like I said um the uh, the programs that existed that have built in mentorship programs and stuff like that were specifically for um, first gen low income. And then the other mentoring programs existed in a space that really didn't take black students into consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so where my white friends were able to get mentors kind of like wherever through faculty or all these other kind of programs and stuff, I just, I, I I just didn't couldn't access that, and so I wouldn't necessarily say that I really had a mentor when I was in undergrad. I was just kind of figuring it out on my own um, and doing a lot of like self-regulating, re- self-regulating and figuring out. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really get a mentor in the social justice game until I got to grad
1: school. I see. Okay. Um, so the program that you started off with in civil engineering did it change?
2: Oh, 100%. I got into calculus and couldn't pass. Um, could my, and that killed my self esteem. Like I said, it was my favorite subject. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that the class is designed, anybody and anybody that's been in a, in a calculus class or a higher level math class in college can speak to this. They teach it as if you already know it the professors come in and say like most of y'all have taken AP calculus. So this is just a refresher course. And so they come in and they just teach the stuff as if you already know it. And yeah, I already knew the stuff, but it's the summertime. And I wasn't like in my spare time looking at my calculus notes, mm, you know, I'm mm. expecting that the teacher would teach not review. Right. Right. Um, and so, and then I was usually on the only black person in the, in the course, which was completely different for me. And um, it was my first time feeling like, I don't know what the fuck is going on. I feel so dumb in this class. Um, and so I failed calculus three times. Um, that F is still on my transcript. And, um, I, so I was just like, well, apparently engineering just isn't cut out for me. I didn't realize that this was a racial issue, not an academic performing issue. Mm. Um, and I think had I had a mentor or, and that's why I went as a higher ed, if I had somebody to tell me what was going on, I wouldn't have would have internalized so much of that. Um, and so then I changed it to accounting and same thing with the economic classes. So I was like, oh no, like I can't, I can't do this. Uh, like, and then I started to really question, like, am I academically gifted for college at all like am I as academically gifted as I thought you know was I just like in a in a community where I was just like the hot shot there and like I was just kind of like and and now I'm here and like getting like the realization that I'm really not as smart as I thought I was you know Mm -hmm. um I just started to really doubt myself and my abilities and so um eventually I changed my major to speech communications because I was like well You know, PR has to do with social media, and I'm on Facebook all the time, and I love it. And so that would be cool.
0: But Mm. then, senior
2: year, when I started to do my senior year project, I discovered I didn't want to do that at all. (laughs) Mm. Um, I didn't want to do it at all. So I, and that's when I discovered I was like, oh, wait, like I'm all right. Higher ed is a thing that people do full time and get paid full time money for that. I could do that. And so I had already decided, senior year, I'm just graduating to get this degree so that. I can get into grad school,
0: um, so you, I
2: had to.
1: Yeah,
2: I, I decided then before I graduated that I wasn't going to use my degree.
1: Okay, so really, the undergrad only served to propel you into your uh, master's degree, which perfect segue into uh, this uh, into this master's. So, first, talk about that moment you graduated from college. What was that like for you?
2: When I graduated, I was so happy. Oh, I had been through so much. And that graduation, I'm going to start crying. That graduation meant more mm. because I had to fight so fucking hard. And I felt like I was fighting hard by myself. Mm. Um, I didn't feel like I had like a real community to really get me there to the graduation day. Um, I didn't feel like I had accomplished a whole lot while I was there um, other than getting this degree. Um and then when I finally was able to cross that stage, I just felt this overwhelming relief that I was like, "God damn it, I did it! I did it! Mm-hmm. I did it! I, I, I awesome, did the Gloria. thing!" Um, and like when I and I knew I was like, "I don't want another black student to have to go through what I went through. I'm going to be the hero that I freaking needed at that time. Like I just." Um, I cried so much after I graduated, um, just being just so thankful that I was able to finish. I was just happy to finish.
1: That's amazing. Um, That's awesome.
2: Where like in private school, when I graduated from high school, I was like all proud about like all these honors and things that I had done or whatever. But college was just like, I survived.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So from there, that moment you graduated, you had already applied to, to go to grad school. Uh, you decided to go to Texas State University. What inspired that decision that you wanted to pursue more schooling, but somewhere else?
2: I'm pausing because I'm gonna have, um, I'm, yeah, I'm gonna yeah, have please. to be really honest. Yeah. Um, I wanted to go into higher ed. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I had a great interview and I went and did all the things, you know, I had researched the school and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But the main reason that I moved to Texas and moved to Texas state was because I was dating somebody at the time and um, they had moved down there the year before me. And Mm -hmm. um, I ended up marrying that person. And um, I am now um, less than a, a week away from our divorce court date. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it's life, right? That's what happens. And so, like, what I what I said to myself and told everybody was that I am moving to Texas so that I can go to grad school, and yes, to pursue this degree, to pursue this um, grad program. But I was also moving down um, so that I could be with my partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's that's how I ended up at Texas State and. Um, I interviewed there. It just felt like everything was right. It felt like everything was lining up right. And that was the right thing to do at the time. Um, I had met all these black higher ed professionals that were just feeding into me in a way that I just had not experienced at SIUE. Um, the, it was, you know, everybody that was mostly everybody that was working in there was like young, the program was like really detailed and intensive. And it was just, it just seemed like the perfect place to be for me as a black person and then texas state has had some real legit social justice warriors that have been in the game for a few decades and so i was able to talk about the stuff that i experienced mm-hmm. and they were able to give me language and to educate me about all these different social justice terms and that's when i was first introduced to like true diversity and equity and inclusion and wow you know, that core definition of like the difference between equity and equality, really, really unpacking. Um, and this was the first time that I really had to address my privilege and unpack what that meant to hold it. Uh, um, yeah. And the responsibility of when, because all, all, we all have privilege and oppression, but understanding what that privilege is and what that means and how that impacts the community around me and, and the things that I needed to unpack about myself um, and some of the internalized racism that I had taken along with me along the way that I had never even realized was there that I needed to wow. unpack.
1: Yeah. Um, so talk to us a little bit about your graduate school experience there at Texas State University. uh what transformed for you, what changed? Uh, I know you gave us a little bit of taste already about what was already changing for you, but for you, what was the major major shift major change?
2: Who the major shift in change, sorry, say that question one more time.
1: Yeah, so uh, talk to us about your graduate ex- school experience and what was the major shift for you uh, in terms of your educational journey?
2: The major shift was. Um, I was the only Black person in my program. Mm. Interesting. And yeah, in a space that screamed about social justice and equity, Mm. whose faculty and staff were all white except for one, and the one Black person that taught in the program was not like a full-time faculty of the program, it was just an additional class that they taught. That person was... Taught was it was the black person that taught the, taught the diversity course,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: and of course it made sense because they were the director and associate vice president for uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and for that department. But uh, yeah, um, understandings again, systemically how racism plays into edu- into these educational systems, and when systems and programs are not built for you my grad school experience was probably the most traumatizing experiences of my life. Mm. Um, I, I left undergrad thinking that that was the worst and I, it had barely begun. And mm. so uh, grad school taught me a lot of what I didn't want to be and a lot of what I didn't want to do. Mm. Um, and um, there have been other people of color that have reached out to me um, speaking about their own experience and their own challenges of, Uh, specifically being in a program like that. And then also um, that area of Texas does not have a lot of uh, Black people. Um, There's not a Black black radio station. And so there's a different kind of isolation that you experience. And so for me, it was like I didn't have any Black people in my grad program. All the other Black people that were around me were full-time professional staff, so there was a level of distance that needed to exist there for, you know, obvious reasons. And um, there were other Black graduate students, but we were so siloed in our programs, we didn't know each other. And there wasn't like a, there was a Black student union, but all of those programs for undergraduate students, there wasn't like a Black graduate student organization, there wasn't a graduate student organization for people of color, there wasn't anything like that. Um, And actually, I I founded the um, first graduate students of color student association at Texas State
1: um, in
2: 2015. I was the founding president of that. And that organization is still going. Um, And so the turning point for me was, um, again, I was like, it was like once I got to college, I felt like I was running away from these programs at graduation um, instead of like standing in the celebratory space. And so um, when I left, I was running from the school at full speed. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. and uh, I learned a lot about the kind of higher ed professional that I wanted to be. Um, and I will say that there is the supervisor. One of the the supervisor that I had, my graduate assistant supervisor, Katie, she was one of my um she was just a really just a light in the darkness. She really like mentored me and helped me and guided me. Um, And we're still friends now. (laughs) We actually need to hit her up. um, And do we do happy hour or whatever, but like it was, and also what changed things for me was um, being able to go to Spain. Um, Part of the curriculum, we were able to go to a international education conference in Spain. Mm -hmm. And um, I was able to like, get the funds to go. And upon a combination of like scholarship and and, um, financial aid, I was able to go. And that was like one of the big highlights of my grad school career. And um, also being able to um, found that student organization, even though it was very difficult to do that, um, being able to found that was huge and awesome. And um, my students, that's where like I started to find like my escape and my joy is through my students, the the mm-hmm. impact that I was having because I was doing um, workshops around retention management. I was well, I worked within the office of retention management and planning, and um, I did a lot of workshops around with for students that weren't at- on academic probation like myself,
0: mm-hmm. um, and
2: helping them navigate, you know, from. And helping them understand how to navigate out of academic probation and how to avoid getting on academic probation at the at, in the first place. And then I became the advisor for Black Women United, and so I was able to meet some really awesome um, Black undergraduate students. And then I made friends with um, again some Black staff that like had a similar. Um, thought processes me and just a just a similar uh, outlook on the world and so I was able to find community that way um and so there are some people like there are a few people from that experience that I was able to take on with me so the the but the but that was really the turning point that that was that um being able to have all those that those few experiences and finding like life within my students Mm -hmm. but also understanding what it it really helped me understand truly what it is to be a minority in a system that wasn't built for you.
1: Yeah. Well, Doria, thank you so much for sharing with that. I know that uh, some, some moons uh, stay, but it sounds like you found some light in the darkness, like you said, some mentoring, some encouragement, and uh, know that your success really is uh, meaningful to not only higher education, but to students that are looking up to you and saying, uh, how do we, how can we also become higher education administrators or servants to the public uh, while keeping in mind, right, uh, social social injustice and um, addressing that and, and trying to build a better community?
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So I have to ask, uh, master's in education, student affairs in higher education. Uh, that's the program that you decided to go with. Uh, did, was there a lot of research involved in there when you, when you pursued this degree?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Cause I applied to more than one school. So like I did, um, uh, I did the tours, I did the meetings. I met with the advisors. I did, I, I pretty much just redid my whole like high school situation when I was looking for a school. So I did a lot of research and that program um as far as within the field was just like one of the just told to be like one of the top and best programs for our field um that in texas a&m's program uh, mm-hmm. because a lot of the same people were involved in the development of those programs i think like a lot of people were like started at texas a&m and built and then there were that some of those folks left and came to texas state and then developed this program and so those programs were kind of like neck and neck um and so um I did a lot of research and figuring out like where I was going to go to grad school. If the program was going to like be in alignment with social justice and all these different things. Um, The, the, I did all of that research and stuff, my full, my whole senior year of -hmm. college. So my whole last year was pretty much just a rinse and repeat of my senior year of high school of just applying, going through the things. But at that point I knew the steps high school had taught me that already. I know mm-hmm. how to get through these steps. I know how to make these appointments. I know the things that I need to be doing. I had made myself a to-do list of tasks list, I was able to get admitted. I was admitted to grad school pretty early comparatively to a lot of my peers. Um, and like, and I funded and with my part-time job, I funded a lot of that stuff. Like I was paying my application fees and paying for, um, my travel to go down there to visit the school and my mm-hmm. travel to go down there and do my interviews. Cause interviews started in December. So I had applied for the program well before that and had got selected to interview. So I've, I booked my flights, paid for my stuff, flew down there, did the interview, did all the stuff, flew back. And then with all the, all the phases after that, I was just busy the entire time um, figuring all that out. Wow.
1: So, talk to us about that moment that you graduated with your master's degree. Uh, what did that moment mean to you?
2: I nadeed across the stage. Um, I I did the I said I it. If anybody knows the nadeed dance, I did that across <laughs> the stage. I was so fucking happy. It was the biggest fuck you to everybody that <laughs> tried to prevent me from crossing this motherfucking stage as yeah. the only black bitch in this fucking program. Um, And if I sound like I'm still angry, I am big mad um, about some of the things that I experienced um, because it was the hypocrisy of it all. But I felt like I really triumphed in that it like, uh, what's the movie in the, uh, what is it? The Marvel movie that was like, what did it cost you? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, Infinity War. Yeah. 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 That's how it felt. Yeah. Crossing that stage felt like it cost me everything to get here and it ain't Mm -hmm, shit mm -hmm. you can do to take away from me now. And um, I felt really empowered and I felt like I was really going to leave that place and like change the face of higher education. I was going to be the higher education professional of some students' dreams. Mm -hmm. And um, I felt really equipped with a lot of social justice knowledge that I would be able to identify these systems faster and be able to provide solutions faster Mm -hmm. um so that i could avoid some of the pain that i experienced through at this point through my undergrad and grad career yeah so i was i was man you couldn't tell me shit boy you couldn't (laughs) tell me nothing talk about i was like i could have walked around in that cap and gown for three weeks just that (laughs) i could have just man and listen, and I already had a like my job for UTA. I had already gotten it before I graduated. So I was yeah. like, yes, like, yes. Yes.
0: Um,
2: so like and then like some of the people that were in my program that gave me the most hell. Um, it was just like, you know, this is like maybe a little bit of my toxicity coming out. Like, <laughs> hell, yeah. Like, I got a job before you right. did. Like, yeah. <laughs> white privileged motherfuckers made it so fucking hard for me look at that karma turn right around i I just woo, baby you could have tell me not a thing, not a thing. Um, I was extraordinarily happy and proud of myself for persevering through that.
1: Awesome. Talk to us about your work experience after graduation. Uh, you said you already had lined up a job before that and now you you you've been doing it so yeah, talk to us about that.
2: So yeah, so then this is where I transitioned into actually doing the work, right? Like mm-hmm. theory to practice. And so I got my job at UTA, and um, that was a different experience because I was not the only Black person on the team. There are actually quite a few people of Black people on the team, and there were Black people at the on the interview committee. And I was like, okay, Whoa. yeah. Um, and then there were other people of color, which was a new experience. I said, we got people that are not black, but also not white at mm. this table too? What, mm. what, <laughs> I'm working here. I can't wait. And mm-hmm. I had already did research at U- of UTA and their um, diversity population. Um, Cause I was like, wow, I was like, never again. Y'all not gonna get me again. So I was like, <laughs> okay, is this place diverse? Yes, it is, okay staff is diverse yes it is okay great (laughs) wonderful news wonderful news and then it was all these women in leadership I was like oh god thank you Jesus (laughs) it was worth it um and so I got there and I learned a lot and so like I think I went through just a lot of the um the things you go through coming being fresh out of a grad program and you're like theory is important. So we need to implement it into everything. And it's like, hold on, slow down, Shadi. Just learn how to do your job. You know how to like, you know, like do the basics. Um, But I was like, so I went through some of those just like entry level job transition stuff of just understanding like how to do my job and how to function within an actual role that like, wasn't like based in like theory and hypotheticals and stuff like that. Um, And so That was, and then admissions was where I got my start in undergrad. So it felt very full circle, like, okay, like I'm back in admissions. I'm kind of back home in a very different environment. Mm -hmm. Um, I had moved to, obviously I moved to Dallas. I was living in Grand Prairie at the time, and there was just way more black people that lived in the area. So there was more stuff to do. And I had given myself some time in between graduation and starting that job. So I had like a nice little break where I had moved out here and I was just doing a lot of nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was just like, especially that first year, just felt like, like, yes, I made the right decision. Now, were there challenges? Yes. (laughs) Were some of them based in race? Yes. Because an admission counselor, you have to do what? Travel to different cities to recruit high school students.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Outside of Dallas, sometimes in towns that (sighs) don't like black people very much.
1: Oh my goodness.
2: Right. And I'm from Chicago. So I don't yeah. know about all of the different racism towns in Texas. This is some different kind of racism. They mm-hmm, will really mm-hmm. kill you. Not that they won't really kill you in the north, but in the south. This is this is this is different. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. there were challenges around that that we I had to work through and figuring out how to work through that with my supervisor. That was her first time really having to grapple with like beyond Training you on how to do the job as a supervisor, I have to be able to see like you. I can't be colorblind. I have to see that you are black because the real the the reality is there are some cities as an admission counselors that I cannot send you to. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. That
2: is the fact. That is the reality. And so that was interesting on figuring out. I think I learned a lot on. I think we all it was all of our first time really having to grapple with that especially like with like the admission counselors to the like assistant director role at the time we were all very young and very like new in the full-time professional game like mm-hmm. those people have mm-hmm. been in that in admissions for a while but uh, I think this was all of our first time dealing grappling with this and so we went through some of the uh I would say like growing pains of figuring that out. Um, but that supervisor, actually I had two supervisors while I was at UTA and I'm, I still have good relationships with both of those people. Um, and I will give it to, uh, my, the first supervisor I had was a white woman. And she, again, was, uh, we went through some of those, uh, some turbulence in my first year, especially, and we have talked about it since. And we both learned a lot, but she has said herself that she learned a lot about, I'll paraphrase a lot learned. She learned a lot about what she didn't know about race and how that impacted her job. And wow. she has grown a lot as a professional from that experience. And so, but and I mean I did too. We both, we all did. We grew a lot from that experience. Um there was a um, I think the turning point for both of us was probably when I um went to uh, I went out to a town that wasn't too far from Jasper, Texas to recruit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you know anything about Jasper, Texas, um, you can look it up in the 2000s. There was a black man that was taken and tied to the back of the pickup truck and he was drug alive um, until he was not anymore. Um, And so that is the kind of and this was like an unprovoked kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, maybe you put a, a, um, a trigger warning right, right before I say this. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But um, so that, that was, so I was sent to a town that wasn't too far from there. It was Vida, Texas was where mm-hmm. this, I, I'm pretty sure it was where all this happened. And so um, I went to a high school and I went and I experienced a lot of like overt like 1950s racism. And, um, I was pulled over by the police, like the, the, like, you know, like she non-verbally threatened me with her gun and verbally mm. threatened me mm. with like why I was there in the first place. And like, and right before college fair and like, once I got to the fair, there was a fair that I went to that, the that was the the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, was when I had a white student walk past my, um, table and, him and his friends started to very loudly make jokes about lynching niggas. Mm-hmm. And so that was when I, and so like, I was bawling when I went to that car, I called my supervisor. I was just like, I can't, I'm so scared. I can't do it. And so she um, d- went through the steps of figuring out how to get me back. Um, and so I left, I went, I went back to the hotel and then I left that morning. Um, and came back to campus and I didn't finish that cause I was supposed to be there for a week. I think I was only there for two days. Um, and I think that was a huge turning point for both of us. But then shortly after that, I ended up pr- transitioning into a different position um, because admission counselor, that's an entry level position. And that's like, you're not supposed to stay there for you know that long. So right, right, right. shortly after that, I mean, that did contribute to, to why I ended up transitioning out um, because it is just dangerous to be an admission counselor as a black person. And that didn't change over the pandemic. Mm. Um, you really have to know where it's safe to drive, what roads are safe to drive on. And um, if you're going going to be in big cities, you know, that's fine. But it's when you get into the outskirts and getting outside of the big cities where you have and Texas is a huge state. Mm-hmm. So um it, it becomes challenging. But um yeah, I, I learned a lot from that role and it was um I'm still very connected to a lot of the people that work there. Um, and most of those people have gone on to, like, get higher positions and do great things. And um, it's always really nice when I see some of them now um, yeah. in the stuff that we're doing now and talking about that, that world of UTA at that time when we were there. So, yeah.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, first of all, I want to just say, one, I'm sorry that that was your experience as an admissions admissions counselor, uh, but two, glad that uh, you were also safe. And, uh, you know, your, your supervisor was having your your safety in mind, bringing you back and all that. So mm-hmm. glad that that happened. Um, and still unfortunate that we're having to deal with this in th- this day and age, as, as we were talking about earlier, right? Like a lot of things that carried over from yesteryear that still, we're still grappling with in, in modern age, which
0: mm-hmm. still,
1: I am mind blown that we're still having to deal with that. Um, so you are the founder of Sailor Justice Project. Can you share with the audience what that is?
2: Sure. So the Safe Justice Project is a grant consulting company um, that I founded in April of 2022. And so I provide grant writing, grant services, um, grant writing, grant management consulting, anything to do with grants I offer um, for anybody. But I specifically have structured it with BIPOC and women owned businesses in, li- in mind. Um, When I left Dallas College and transitioned into grant writing on my own, um, I found that the challenges that small with any business owned by someone that exists within the margins of this country Mm -hmm. um, that are underrepresented, you have a hard time securing funding because there is racial bias within, you know, when you go to get a bank loan, right, as a person of color, those interest rates. Can be a lot of times are higher and race Mm -hmm. has to do with that. You have grants that are available, but a lot of these businesses usually just don't have the capacity. You're trying to, you're busy trying to run the business. Then you need to scrape out time to like have your life, sleep, see your family, and then write a grant. It's not that people some people don't know how, it's that they don't have the capacity. And then Mm -hmm. the other part is that some people don't know how. Like if you're great at selling t-shirts maybe writing is not like your strong suit, right? But that's not what you're like your, your thing is selling t-shirts. So you should just be good at that. You don't have to be good at writing a grant because you own business. And so that's where grant writing comes into the fold. And so um, I do um, grant writing for those misses to help them secure funds, um, to expand capacity um, and sometimes to just get started, just to have some funds to like, buy a zoom account you know what i'm saying yeah, like yeah you know just to p- purchase like the basic bare elements of what you need but then i also like write grants for um you know and on a larger scale um um federal like you know that my first experience was really like working i mean i didn't take the lead on that i just kind of helped with that one but was at uh, dallas college writing the trio sss grant Wow. Um, yeah. but you know like when you when you work as a staff when you work under that um when it's time to rewrite most of the time you have some involvement in that process. So um, yeah, that's how the social justice the Sailor Justice Project came to be. And then a lot of times people ask like about the name, the Sailor Justice Project, the name came from my love of anime. I was going to ask. Sailor Moon was my introduction to feminism. And um, I didn't know that at the time, but you know, you have these um, all women that are the main characters that are fighting and winning the day and the man is the one that comes in kind of as the you know attractive sidekick you know to help <laughs> to throw a rose and help some stuff out mm-hmm. and then social justice being such a core part of who I am the sailor justice project just made me being I always wanted to be a sailor house so being sailor justice just made sense and then naming it the sailor justice project just just that just fit.
1: That's a, That fits so well. So um, are there any folks that you would like to recognize on this podcast?
2: Folks that I would like to recognize. Uh, um, Kim Nam Joon, Kim Sook Jin, Min Yoo Bi, Jung Ho Park Jimin, Kim Tae Young, Jensok BTS.
0: We're going through a whole roster.
2: <laughs> no, seriously. Um, folks I would like to recognize. Um me, cause I'm the bomb. Um and um the ever the supervisors that I've had um that have gotten me to this point, um recognizing them and recognizing um my mom. My mom for sure. Um she did oh yep. (laughs) I'm gonna cry twice in this podcast. Oh my goodness. She did it's okay. Take them take the time. My mom. Did so much to give me as much of a chance to make it as she could. And I just I know now, particularly as a grown woman, having lived life, I know how much it cost mm-hmm. for her to do the things that she did so that I could have the, the jump start in my life that I had. So even though I had all those challenges. I had the knowledge and the resources and the ability to figure out a solution to get myself to where I needed to be.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I just really appreciate and love her for that. Um, and she'll be my forever hero for that.
1: That's awesome.
2: So yeah, Bye-bye. I love that.
1: Any advice for Trio students pre-college or who are currently in college?
2: Advice for Trio students. Um, listen to my story and do not take this as a sign that college is not for you. Um, we need you. We need you to go. We need you to finish. Um, college is an amazing experience. And I had a lot of really positive experiences. Um, and I felt that it was really important to highlight the challenges that I have and the realities about what it is to be in higher education as a person of color. And the things that I talked about, I'll just say that, I entered college in 2009 and finished graduate school in 2014. So no, 2016, I finished grad school. So the things that I talked about are not things that happened in the 1950s and 60s. These are things that happened in the 2000s. The things that happened to me at UTA, those were things that happened between like not being able to go to certain cities that was true in 2016, 2017 and 2018 and it is still true now. These are not things that happened a long time ago. There are students that are probably listening to this that you were definitely alive and in school when these things were happening and they mm-hmm. are still happening. Mm-hmm. So my advice to you is to find mentors of color but beyond that find mentors that can see you as a whole person. Um and be cautious of people of color that give you advice to assimilate into the white culture as a solution to anything. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Be very cautious, be very cautious. Um, That can be sometimes just as damaging as the, the, the oppressive system itself. Um, Get loud about your experiences. The student voice is the most powerful one. And, I think that is something that I did not realize, and people say it all the time. But if you hear anything on this podcast that I say, hear this. Your voice is the most powerful voice in that bitch, period.
1: I love that. Speak
2: on it. Speak on your that. experience. Get on TikTok. Speak on your experience. Don't do like me and wait until you're way beyond after the grad program to talk about your experience. Talk about it while you're there. Because if students are saying it, Staff, our hands are tied to a certain degree. So there's advocating and things that we can do, but there's a lot of red tape and there's a lot of stuff we can't do. You all have freedom to do things that we can't do and say things we can't say. Use that to your advantage. It'll serve you.
1: Fantastic. Any words of wisdom for TRIO professionals?
2: For TRIO professionals, um, my heart goes out to y'all. I love y'all so much. You do so much work and so much of it is unpaid. And so many of us are so underpaid and so underappreciated. And a lot of times grant funded programs are kind of put over in the corner because largely people don't really understand grants. So what I'll say to them is, um, I'll speak to TRIO directors specifically. Um, When you are rewriting your grant, don't just rewrite to get the funds rewrite in abundance really evaluate your salary staff and make and and see what you can do to not just make your the salary um we don't want to live just above the poverty line right Mm -hmm. so like what can you do and rewriting when it's time to rewrite how can you write in salary that is sustained able to have sustainable staff and that provides a quality of life that you can sustain staff because one of the challenges about higher ed in general but also within grant-funded programs and trio is that it's hard to sustain staff when you don't have a salary that can sustain you Mm -hmm. and so you have all this turnover and students don't get the quality of care and so I would say I would challenge directors to look at grants that have been funded you know maybe for 10 or 15 20 years that have been in the game Really look at that with a critical lens and see, like, what are some areas where we really need to change, particularly after the pandemic? Um, And to uh, get out of the trio bubble. The trio bubble is a wonderful, warm place sometimes, and sometimes it's not. But um, I think higher ed, we really suffer a lot from silos. So get out of your silo is the advice I would give any higher ed professional. Get out of your silo. Understand uh, all the different departments and things and uh, know that the impact that you're having on these students is a lifetime impact. Um, And you hold the keys to some of the most precious people that we have. And without you, there are a lot of first-gen students that, that that wouldn't graduate otherwise. And so you are doing such powerful and amazing work that a lot of times feels thankless. Um, And I want any trio professional that's listening right now to know that, like, I don't know you, but I see you Mm -hmm. and I see the work that you're doing and I see what it costs you. I see what it costs your family. I see what it costs on a day to day. I know I've lived it. And um, and I know that in higher ed, we're like, we do it all for the students. And it's it's, sometimes it's like you do it for the students at the cost of your own mental health and at the cost of your own well-being. And so if you're, and particularly if you're a new professional, but any professional in trio um, or any grant funded program, I would say really look at your systems because a grant that's written, that's another system. How is this system participating in the oppression that we say that we're trying to undo and how we can, can we undo that within what we have within our control, which is that grant?
0: Yeah. Very good. I like that. Oh,
2: and also, sorry, one more thing. Uh to university presidents, read the fucking grant.
1: I like that. That's a, that's a good good piece of advice for any institutional leaders.
2: Read it once, just one time if you could.
1: Wonderful, Doria. That Thank you. That would be awesome. That's, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh so I I love this structure of this next question. So I'm I'm curious as to see how you're going to go with this uh what is one word you would use to describe yourself just one word
2: one word
1: Mm -hmm. sorry i'm limiting you to just one word Mm. like the one track from bts i'm sorry
2: i know right um tenacious
1: tenacious i love that that'll be the title of the podcast Mm. tenacious Gloria warmly yes that's why i asked the question that's why i asked the question
2: <laughs> I, okay i see how you how you just advised me right there i see what you did okay i recognize what you just did great that was great that was great okay 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 yes yes
1: awesome. i love it i love it doria it has been an honor to host you here i i hope that you consider coming back onto the podcast soon Uh, And that we could have like a panel discussion with you and some other administrators to talk about TRIO, to talk about experiences and all of that. Would you be open to that?
2: Oh, 1000%. Hell yeah. Another excuse to talk about TRIO and my experiences. Yes. Do I need another opportunity to open my mouth and talk? Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Uh, So Doria, at the the podcast, we we have a a little bit of a tradition going on. So what we do is we have the guests sign off. Uh, Do you care to do the honors for us?
2: Sure. Okay. So let's see. Um, so my name is Daria Wormbley. I am the CEO and founder of the Sailor Justice Project and forever hire a forever higher ed professional. Um, I love students. I believe in education. And um, I think that we have enough people that are on the ground doing the work of social justice. We can really turn shit around. Um, and trio works.
1: That was our guest, Dorio Warmly, a p- former professional staff member for Student Support Services. Doria, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your trio story. Uh, and again, thank you for being uh, for being your whole self and for being the uh, very authentic on the podcast. So we appreciate you. Remember, if you would like to be on the Let's Talk Trio podcast or know a staff advocate or participant or alumni send us an email at letstalktrio at gmail.com. That email again, it's L-E-T-S-T-A-L-K-T-R-I-O at gmail.com. A huge thanks to our sponsors, Angelica Vialpando, Rosario Riley, Jaded Electronics, and Student Access. Thank you all so much for your continued support of this podcast. I'd like to take a moment to thank our honorary members of the Let's Talk Trio podcast, Roderick Chambers, Tony Ho, Scott Kendall, and Susan Cramp. The Let's Talk Trio podcast team is John Russell, audio engineer, music producer and composer, and post-production editor. Amelia Castaneda, script supervisor, marketing manager, social media manager, and producer. Juan Rivas, executive producer and host. This episode was recorded Friday, January 13th, 2023. We're off to a strong start for January. Thank you all so much for tuning in and for listening, and we will catch you on the next episode.